You're listening to the Career Musician Podcast with creator and host, Nomad. With 20 plus years of experience in the music industry, Nomad has done just about everything to earn a living as a career musician. From being music director to celebrity artists, playing iconic arenas and stadiums, composing for film and TV, and even playing your average local club gigs, he's done it all. Nomad's mission is to empower musicians across the globe with strategies for a sustainable career while blasting stereotypes and to bring you tried and true wisdom from his colleagues in this crazy business we call music. On this episode of the Career Musician Podcast, we have Jason Hartless, young drummer who at 25 is holding down the drum chair for Ted Nugent while attending Berkeley Online College of Music and also co-managing a record label. Jason tells us all about his multifaceted career and just how he did it. All of those young folks who are listening, who are aspiring to be a professional musician, listen up. Jason has done it, and he will give you some great pointers. All right, welcome to the Career Musician Podcast. This episode, we have the young, fierce, talented Jason Hartless, drummer to Ted Nugent. Hey, man, how's it going? Good, man. Welcome. Oh, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. So how old are you, bro? 25. You know, I've been very lucky to have, uh, you know, been doing this for most of my life. And, you know, I, I joined with Nugent when I was 21. So, you know, luckily been around the right people at the right time and at a very young age and, you know, just doing what I love. Okay. That's why I wanted to start with that. Because first of all, dude, kudos to you. Seriously, like no BS. I mean, uh, I know it sounds like I'm trying to hype this up, but I am truly just enamored with your success at such a young age because I think, I just think it's amazing, first of all. So I think it's great, number one. Number two, when I was your age, um, I had some successes as well, but I was still trying to get into the quote unquote scene and figure things out. Um, and thirdly, I just via the correspondence that we've had over the past several months, I really like your business acumen. You're a clear communicator. Um, you say what you do, you're going to, you, you do what you say you're going to do. You know what I mean? You follow up uh, in a timely fashion. You just, you're on point. Your website is dope. All your links are working. Everything is on point. So really that's the purpose of the career musician is to teach the young generations of aspiring professionals how to do this. And you are the, uh, maverick for that generation oh thank you yeah i mean you know it's it's i feel like that's a very very important part of the industry that doesn't really get noticed too much you know it kind of gets overlooked and you know of course the younger generation you know my generation you know the millennials and stuff like that we kind of use the social media and we use the online stuff as as our you know beta beta tool to to get our you know name everywhere as possible but unfortunately there's there's a lot of times lost communication in terms of how they communicate you know um we're in the world of texting so people just assume when you text you're going to use business communication exactly how you text using lol and and you know just quick small little acronyms like that but again it's not a professional way of of kind of handling yourself you know i was very very lucky that my you know my father was a musician and, um, you know, he was around in the late 80s and early 90s, and, you know, he got his feet wet before, but he was always a business-minded person. So, you know, he, ne he was a drummer, but he never really focused on teaching me how to play drums. The biggest thing that he always taught me was the business side of it, you know, and making sure you have a professional, you know, attitude and, and you know, how you go about communicating with, you know, fellow musicians and potential, you know, clients and, and, and artists and producers that you'll work with. You know, and um, which led me to pursue a uh, music business degree from Berkeley and um, graduating actually next month. Unfortunately, due to the uh, the craziness that's going on in the world, I don't have a commencement ceremony. But, you know, uh, I graduate with my 
uh, bachelor's next month, and then in June, I start with my uh, master's at Berkeley in music business. That's amazing. Dude, okay. So you touched on a lot of things right there. First of all, the fact that your father focused on teaching you the business acumen aspect of, of the industry. I think that's amazing because let's be honest, you can learn how to play drums anywhere now. <laughs> I mean, any instrument, you can learn how to get really good at, at your craft by just doing YouTube dives, right? So I think the fact that he focused on the business is really important and obviously it's paid off. Well, you know, even, you know, because I, I teach students, you know, pretty much every day and, you know, what I always tell them and even, even me at 25, I still didn't even have, you know, the YouTube full access until only a couple of years ago. I mean, you know, I look at when I was 15, 16, YouTube wasn't like it is today. You know, you, right. you had access to this stuff, but it was not as broad as it is today. So nowadays you've got, you know, Drumeo and, you know, various online lessons where they bring in real artists and things like that. And it's just, it's absolutely insane the resources you've got. You know, I'm the type of guy that when I get into, you know, some of my influences, I dig deep into every single record they played on, every video possible on YouTube that they played on, you know, things like that. And that's the sort of thing that I try to pass on to the younger, younger generation, you know, of like, you have this stuff at your fingertips, use it. Use it. That's right. That's right. That's a perfect segue. Tell us about your, your history and inspiration. What got you into playing drums in the first place? Was your dad an integral part of that? Well, you know, I really started playing when I was about six months old, you know, because I would sit on my dad's lap and bang on his kit. But and then by the time I could crawl and walk, I'd just go down and, you know, sit on his drum set and start banging away. And, you know, around the time I was about two or three, uh, maybe maybe about maybe three or four probably better um my my dad started bringing some of his musician friends over and you know i'd start jamming with them and then by the time i was five i started playing you know uh cover gigs around detroit um with an all dope adult band but you know my musical taste and like the earliest music that i was exposed to was probably was probably the most unconventional to most people and it's really glam rock you know, um, so The Sweet, T-Rex, Slade, you know, uh, Some Kiss, you know, that sort of thing. Because, you know, Sweet and T-Rex are my dad's favorite bands of all time. So those are what I really, really, really cut my teeth on when I was very young. And, you know, honestly, one of my earliest memories is watching a uh, Top of the Pops VHS of, you know, 70s glam rock artists. You know, but, uh, you know, as I as I got older, I started listening to different things, you know, Alice Cooper and Sticks and Brian Setzer Orchestra and a bunch of different stuff. And, you know, pretty much my whole life, I've, I've been this type of musician that listens to everything and, you know, tries to be able to play everything. You know, and especially in this day and age in this industry, you have to be the guy that just says yes. If, you know, you've got a client that says, hey, can you play, you know, reggae? Yes. Can you play death metal? Yes. You know, because that's how you're going to get gigs. That's how you're going to continue getting gigs. And that's how you're going to broaden your spectrum in terms of who you're playing with and what you're playing. And, you know, for me as, you know, I, conventionally I'm a studio musician. So that's what keeps my job so, so, so fresh and so new every single day. Exciting. That's right. I mean, I, I went from one of the craziest things I did is I was on tour with Jolyn Turner from Rainbow and Deep Purple. We did a quick little run. And I flew directly from St. Louis to back home to Detroit, went straight from the airport to the studio to record a big band Christmas album with, with some of Bob Seger's horn section. So it's like you go from 80s hard rock and metal to big band Christmas. Isn't that amazing? And, and you said the magic word. Yes. Can you do X, Y, Z? Yes. Can you do this? Yes. Can you do it standing on your head? Yes. Sure. Why not? <laughs> uh, my favorite story for me was uh, a producer asked me in Nashville during a recording session, do you play the ukulele? Yes. I didn't own a ukulele. I went home. I bought a ukulele and a book on how to play some chords. You know, YouTube wasn't around yet, like we talked about. And uh, the next day I went back and I ended up playing the ukulele on the Lilo and Stitch direct D to DVD release, oh, right, you know what right. I mean? Nice. So it's the sa same kind of thing. You always say yes, and, you, and, and even if you don't know how, you figure it out, and then you just go back and nail it. And even if 
it's on the spot, say yes and trust your gut, trust your intuition, right? Exactly. And honestly, that's, that's the whole thing is, you know, trust your gut, don't trust your brain a lot of times. Your brain you might go. say, well, I, I don't know how to do this, but, you know, if you're a competent enough musician, you're a confident enough musician, you can figure it out, you know? And, and that's the biggest thing is, you know, having great confidence in what you do will literally, you know, write your own check. But let's talk about that. You said two words that are great, confidence and competence. So you're confident enough to know that you have the competency, right, to pull it off. But then there's this other fine line, which I always talk about. In today's world, everybody's concerned with swag. Tell us your perspective on the difference between Confidence versus arrogance. Well, yeah, again, I, you know, I tell my students this constantly because, you know, and I'm not going to lie, sometimes I come off as egotistical, but that's straight up my confidence. And the reason that there's a big difference, confidence is when you can back up every single thing that you say. Egotistical is when you say things and you're just talking, you know, uh, circles around yourself and you're, you're building this hype that does not exist. You know, so, That's right. Or, I mean, let's be blunt. You're talking at your ass. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, so, so having the confidence to say exactly what you can do and back it up 100%, you know, some people might interpret it as egotistical, but really in this, in this industry, you have to be confident in what you do or else you're going you're gonna to sink and fail. That's right, because if you don't sell it yourself, nobody's going to believe it. Yeah, without a doubt, you know, and especially being, being a, you know, in the studio, you're working with guys that you've never met before sometimes or producers you never met before. So if you come in, you know, boasting about how, how great you are and, and this and this and that, and then you get in the live room and then you just completely just fail, guess what? You're not getting called back. That's right. That's right. And I always say the studio, I'm so glad you brought up being a session musician. The studio is the truest test of your competency. Like how competent are you at this craft that you're, that you're uh, portraying. So you jumped in there. We'll start with that. Let's talk about studio etiquette. I think a lot of, I'll just say young players, but even I'm sure there's, uh, you know, players who are not as young who still are kind of understanding what it's like to be a studio musician and what the process is. I know my rules that I've abided by over the years. I cut my teeth in the Nashville studio scene, so I learned really fast um, how to how to you know carry myself and and the protocols. But I'd like to hear it from you and what you think about the etiquette. Well, you know, I, I again, I was very lucky. My first studio session was done when I was eight years old. You know, and well, hold on, pause, <laughs> elaborate, because that's not something that the average musician does. Well, um, around the, my, my, my godfather's um, Richie Scarlett, who was guitar player for Ace Frehley for many years, and, and when Ace went back to Kiss, um, he started playing bass for Mountain. And I was a massive Mountain fan, you know, when I was, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old, which is an odd band for a kid that age to be into. But I was super into him, and Corky Lang, the drummer, I was just like, this guy's amazing. So when I started doing those cover gigs, um, I used to cover some mountain songs, Nantucket Sleigh Ride, Mississippi Queen. And my dad filmed um, me and the band playing Nantucket Sleigh Ride one show and sent it to Richie. Richie ended up sending it to Corky. And Corky called my dad up and was like, hey, I want to work with this kid. So between the ages of 8 and 10, you know, Corky, who was living in Toronto at the time, would drive to Detroit and we'd work on this um, kind of Jason Hartless solo record, if you will. You know, and that was my... You know, I never, I've never been one to want to be a solo musician. I'm a drummer, you know. But this was basically a excuse for Corky to teach me how to be a, a professional musician and be a studio musician, be a you know actual real professional within a studio setting. If that makes sense, you know. Absolutely. But but here, let me ask you this: at eight, nine, ten years old, did you have the attention span? Did you have the capacity to? Yeah, I mean, I've I've always been called an old soul, really, my entire life. So I can tell. Yeah. You know, I I was not one that played video games. I'm not one that you know you know. I would rather play my drums than you know play in the sandbox or something like that. You know, when I was little. So, you know, it, it, of course, even at that age, you're going to have some attention attention things. But for the most part, you know, having that kind of mindset that I've had my entire life, it really really helps. But. Um, you know, it, 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 that, that whole 
you know, two years of on and off doing these sessions was really great and, you know, definitely was the cutting my teeth in a, in a perfect setting. But, you know, the, the moment that I really, really knew that I wanted to be a studio player was um, I was 10 years old. My godfather was doing a record and, you know, he was always known for, you know, bringing in like, you know, Carmine Apiece, um, you know, uh, the, uh, Bobby Chouinard when he was still alive and Anton Fig used to, you know played on a lot of his stuff and you know so he would always have you know all-star musicians on that so he called uh, my dad and he's like I want Jason to play on a track so me and my dad flew out to uh, New York to Millbrook Recording Studios in upstate and um, they, they positioned it to where um, Anton Fig was going to cut his two tracks the day that I got in and then the next morning I was going to do my my track um, you know Anton did the Letterman show, came up from the city, did his tracks, and you know I got to sound check his drums and stuff. And, That's awesome. You know, so we're we're in the control room. Anton's about to cut his tracks. He never heard these songs before, and he's sitting there, you know, writing stuff down as we listen to the song. And he calls me over, and he then shows me how he charts his music. And I seen him. I you know he showed me you know, little details and all this stuff, and and then he goes out there and literally perfect takes and two you know both takes that he yeah. did perfect and i, I you right know, first take is just as good as second take right exactly yeah. and, you know, as a 10 year old kid i was just like what <laughs> you know yeah that kind of that kind of information at such a young age matt you cannot put a price tag on that the fact that somebody like anton with all of his years of experience and skill set <laughs> showed you how to chart a song and then you know did it right before your eyes. It's amazing. Yeah, it just absolutely blew my mind. And, you know, that was the moment. It's like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> it's beautiful, man. Beautiful. How do you interact with the producer? Uh, first of all, I have two questions. How do you interact with the producer? Let's talk about that. Well, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the type of guy that when I'm in there, I'm, I'm listening to who's ever hired me to play on the track. You know, yeah, if, if they want constructive criticism, of course, I'll give them my opinion. But really, at the end of the day, I want to make sure that the producer and the artist is happy. You know, um, I, I, I love working with drummer producers because we, you know, we, of course, speak the same language. Like I work out of Pearl Sound Studios up here in Detroit, legendary place. And, um, you know, the uh, owner and producer, Chuck Alcazian, uh, is a drummer. So like when we're tracking stuff, it's like mental kind of communication. And it's, it's so crazy, like we've done entire albums that we never even listened to in like an hour and a half. You know, it's just doing crazy stuff right. like that. But, you know, working with other producers, you know, I try to every session go in and try to get the vibe of what they want. You know, if I came in, because honestly, I hate listening to tracks before a session. I'm the same way. Because, right. because I, you, know, you never know, unless, unless a producer gives you a long list of, of notes, you never, ever know what exactly they want. You know? and, and a lot of times when I'm tracking, I'm tracking to you know, a scratch acoustic guitar and a vocal, or sometimes just an acoustic guitar or something like that. So you, know, you never know exactly what their overall pitcher's thinking is. You know? So I, I, I try to communicate as much as possible on every single front, you know, and even even as, as deep as, you know, what type of fill do you want here? Do you want a, a crazy fill? Do you want a super simple fill? You know, things like that, and making sure that what I'm playing, it fits the song perfectly. That's right. All right, second part of this question, how do you interact with the other musicians on the session if you're tracking with a live band? You know, it's 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 it sucks because it, it doesn't, doesn't happen as much anymore here, especially here right. in Detroit. You know, right. most well, everywhere, honestly, even here in L.A. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, I feel it's it because it, it, I'm, I'm a guy that all of my favorite drummers are, you know, studio drummers from the 70s and 80s. You know, so these guys are at the <laughs> at the peak of, of, you know, actually real studio players making a living. You know, luckily, right. luckily, I, I stay very busy up here in Detroit. But a lot of the stuff that I do is, you know, there's a scratch guitar and vocal already cut. I never see the artist sometimes. You know, I never see the same musicians, but on the rare case that I do track with live musicians, it's so much better, and yeah. especially if you've played with those musicians before, because you, you've got this camaraderie that, you know, just only exists in that situation. You know, you're going to play something different when you're playing with a live musician versus just playing to a, a scratch track. 
And, you know, I, right. I, I get it. We're in the days of small budgets on, on records and things like that. But, you know, I, I, I wish more studios and more producers and more artists would bring in all of the session guys at the same time. Yeah, I definitely think uh, it's a budgetary issue most often um, as the industry has been turned on its head and then sideways and then shrunk and then expanded and re-shrunk and repack. <laughs> I mean, right, right. you know, you know, the industry has been through so much, uh, especially now, even with the pandemic. Um, but I do think eventually we're going to get back to some more live interaction in the studio in the future. It seems like things are shifting that way. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you kind of agree about that? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, Nashville never really lost that. You know, right. there's, of course, certain cases where it's, you know, does exist and doesn't exist. But, you know, I think what really killed it was the capability of everybody recording at their house. You yeah, know, and, and, and honestly, during this pandemic, everybody's doing the, the quarantine videos and stuff like that, which is which is cool. It's, right. it's great. It's, you know, a fun little thing to do. Keep people, you know, and musicians, you know, playing and stuff like that. But, you know, having your own home studio is good for demos that's it you know unless unless you i love it man. unless you have a real real studio in your house you know yeah. laptop recording stuff on your laptop with a you know a, a cheap uh interface go to, go no, to, there's go no, to a studio <laughs> yeah there's no there's no comparison especially when you're talking about drums so what i do here in my project studio i farm out my live drums right so if i need some live drums i send them to a, a buddy who has uh a live drum studio with all of the proper mics and the proper preamps and compressors, right? And that truly does make a difference when you're tracking live drums. Oftentimes, I think now, especially in modern pop music, um, it's in the box, as we call it. So all of the drums are coming from sound modules, you know, plugins and whatnot. But what I love about you is that you are a diehard real drummer. So, well, you know, I, I, I do agree with that. The, the thing is, is, and I've had this conversation with, with a lot of, you know, colleagues that have been around for a very long time and recorded in million dollar studios. And, and right. very, very, very few people my age and my, my generation have actually recorded drums through a Neve. That's right. And actually recorded drums through uh, API Council or, you know, SLS or, yes. or something like that. You know what I'm saying? It's like no one, until you actually do that, you don't really understand the difference. You know, I, again, I've, I've uh, working on these quarantine videos, I got a really crappy, cheap setup of stuff at my house, meaning, you know, I just got a eight channel uh, interface and a couple good microphones just for the situation. But I would never send out stuff for a real record tracking like that because you're right. not getting the same sonic qualities out of it. Absolutely. And I do I do agree. It's funny, I'm producing a track now for an artist and I reached out to my buddy who's an amazing mix engineer. So I agree that collaboration is really where the magic happens. You know, my buddy Tony Shepard, who's mixing this track for me, he's been mixing for 30 years. I've been playing guitar for 30 years and producing for 15. So we each have our little areas of expertise. And when you bring it together, that's when the true magic happens. Absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky that, you know, I have a studio like Pearl Sound, you know, with a freaking 2,500 square foot live drum room. And, Ooh. you know, so that anytime I've got remote, remote sessions, I literally just go over there and split whatever I'm making with, you know, the producer. You know? That's right. Because it's like having that at my at my doorstep versus just getting an okay sounding drum track at my house. Huge difference, and it makes huge. <laughs> at the end of the day, it makes me sound and look a lot better too. Oh man, and it goes miles, miles, miles beyond what the uh, the alternative is. I mean, when you hear that song now and you hear those drums through those compressors and and consoles, oh my goodness, so amazing. Um, I love that. So you really do have a great handle on being a studio musician at such a young age. That is a wonderful thing. I know I can tell that you don't take it for granted, that you know, you're know you aware of what that is. I do wish more young people had those opportunities. And uh, like I said, I think that we're going to start to see more of that come around in the future. But it is difficult right now for the big studios to stay open. All right, shifting gears. 
you just said it yourself. You were on tour with who were you on tour with, and you flew home to do a, a big band session, and you went back. Well, I mean, th that was uh, with Jolyn Turner, but my uh, my Jolyn Turner, my main, right? My main gig is uh, with Ted Nugent. Right, but I love that how you were out on tour with Jolyn Turner doing a one-off, as we call it, right? Yep. You fly home, you do a big band session, so now you're getting both ends of the spectrum. And I know a lot of career musicians listening to this podcast can identify with that. I know myself; I've I've done that so many times, and I love it. It always makes you feel like, let's be honest, it makes you feel like a rock star when you do that. You're like, yeah, you know, right, right, right. <laughs> I'm so in demand. I'm doing this, the tour, and I'm doing the studio, and I'm running back and forth to do both. And like you said, our heroes from back in the day, '70s, '80s, and '90s, they did that on a regular basis. You know, um, like I said, shifting gears, going to tour now. Let's talk about your touring essentials and the touring protocols for you. I think you said you started with Ted Nugent at 21. Yep. Is that right? Yep. Um, so that was four years ago. Let's, yeah, talk about that. Yeah, I mean, my, my, first, my first tour was when I was 12. And that's really, really when I started, you know, doing a lot of, you know, stuff regionally. And then it just kept blossoming. And then, okay, um, so yeah, tell us, but again, slow down. <laughs> I want to hear more about that. Again, this is not the average musician. The average musician doesn't go on tour at 12. So talk about that before you go on. <laughs> well, I, um, I, I, I got called to, actually, I was, I was playing with this guy named Brian Schramm um, just as a, you know, kind of a side project, but he had his own band that was doing really well within Detroit. And, um, you know, I was a big fan of his band and, you know, I started playing with a few members of the band, and um, they were about to leave on tour to go open for Lake Le uh, Les Claypool from uh, Primus. And, Huge! And uh, I had I had a couple months previous gotten a call last minute. I was homesick and uh, from school, and my my mom got a call from my dad saying, "Can you drive Jason to Toronto?" Um, the Brian Schramm's drummer can't make it to this recording session and they need him there. So I'm like, okay. So sick as a dog, get in the car, drive up Ooh. to Toronto, do it, do the session and just didn't think nothing of it. But I was so excited because I loved this band that I was doing a, a track for. And yeah. again, you know, went back home, went back to normal life, didn't think nothing of it. A couple months later, drummer couldn't make this show in Milwaukee opening for Les Claypool. So I get the call day before, can you do it? Yep do the show, get asked to join the next day. And, you know, that was the band that I really started touring with. And, you know, we toured all across the U.S. And But the biggest um, part of that was in 2000, 2009, we opened up for Motley Crue for three months on the Crew Fest 2 tour. So that was my first, that was my first uh, amphitheater, you know, major, major tour. And so you're 12 years old on the Motley Crue tour. I was 14 at that time. 14. <laughs> and and did you have uh, did you have somebody with you? And uh, not you, go ahead. Yeah, my my dad was brought in as tour manager again, having industry experience. You know, it made more sense from bringing my dad on instead of hiring a tour uh, a tour manager and have one of my parents come with us. So, you know, he That's was right. he was able to to you know go with me, and it was great to you know see the country really really for the first time at that point and play these massive amphitheaters and you know it's 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 actually today um because the label that owned all of this band's stuff i'm now managing partners in and um today we released three tracks of a session that that this band did in winnipeg canada with dale penner who produced nickelback and the stuff was never released. And, you know, during this quarantine, going through, you know, our old archives and stuff, and I found this this EP, I'm like, hell, we own this stuff, let's put it out. But Which, what's the band? Uh, Shram was, was the name of it. But uh, S-H-R-A-M? Yep. Okay. And, you know, I toured with them until uh, about 2010, and that's when I started high school. And that's that's the crazy thing, is the, the Motley Crue tour was the summer before my high school, uh, ninth grade year in high school. So I kind of had the choice of, do I do marching band or do I tour Motley Crue? <laughs> so. <laughs> Bro, again, the average musician is not faced with these decisions at such an early age. I mean, come on. Yeah. So, That's a big deal. But, you know, we, we the, the tour ended, I think, I think like two days before I started high school. So that was a really, really weird instant transition. 
But, uh, you know, it, when I was in high school, I, I kind of took a break touring and it really, really focused on, A, my studies, but also mm -hmm. um, progressing as a player. Because before then, I had studied with various drummers, but I'd never had a weekly drum instructor. I was mainly self-taught for the most part. So at that point, I was kind of a quote-unquote rock drummer. Gotcha. So at this point, I said, okay, well, I actually really need to take this time and become a musician. Yeah, I was really a rock drummer up to that point. So going forward in high school, I thought, okay, well, I need to become a musician. You know, so I started taking weekly lessons with a, a guy here in Detroit um, named George Dunn, who's an absolute percussion legend. And this guy completely, completely changed my playing. You know, integrating rudiments and integrating, you know, more, uh, more complex technique within it. You know, we rarely set out a drum set. We mainly talked about, you know... Um, rhythm exercises and you know snare drum technique and things like that and that absolutely took my playing to a whole different level so by the time I graduated high school um, I, I, I started touring with this band Pistol Day Parade that had a lot of success uh, regionally and the band was about to blow up we got signed to a label um, had some pretty big management behind us and um, we had this song Rockstar's Girlfriend that did really, really, really well. What's it called? Rock what? Rockstar's Girlfriend. Okay. And um, right, but it did, it was, it was on the, it's funny because th that song had been like on gold rotation in Detroit rock stations for years before it was officially released. It, like it was a demo that was playing on it. So by the time I joined the band, we cut the album and um, our management and label was like, well, we need to get you guys a, a, a really solid tour to coincide with the single release for, you know, the national push of Rockstar's Girlfriend. So the tour that we ended up getting in 2014 was opening for Ted Nugent for two and a half months. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was really the, my introduction into that whole camp. Hey, this is Jason Hartless, and you're listening to The Career Musician with my buddy Nomad. Join The Career Musician Facebook group and get involved in the conversation. You're listening to the Career Musician Podcast by Nomad. Nomad is the career musician. In this podcast, we highlight interviews with other industry professionals, providing insight and practical wisdom for the next generation of aspiring career musicians. You know, it, it, it's such a shame because the, the single was climbing so fast. Every week it was just climbing, 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 climbing. And at the end of the tour, it was number 19 on the charts, and our radio promoter straight up told us, like, you guys get another big major tour, and this song will be number one. And, wow. and um, we ended up booking a co-headlining with Buck Cherry, and it never happened because multiple members of the band decided they hated touring. Oh, <laughs> that's terrible. So, you know, it's, it's straight up, you know, the, the, the plot line of that thing you do, the movie, you know. Right, so, right, right, right. So, um, you know, unfortunately that, that exploded. And, um, but fortunate for me, I stayed in contact with the, you know, management and various people in the Nugent camp. And um, after that tour, Ted decided to <coughs> change, up, change up his, uh, his lineup a little bit. And... Um, you know, I was sending some emails to some people in the industry, just like, hey, you know, I'm available, you know, next summer for some touring. Let me know if you hear anything. One of them was Ted's manager I emailed, not knowing that, you know, Ted had changed some uh, musicians in the band. And he, he responded, like, can you do a Nugent set? Like, yeah, absolutely. So I got a call from Ted like two days later, and we talked about Detroit music. We talked about what he wants in a drummer and all this stuff. And I flew down to Waco, Texas, and jammed with Ted and our bass player, Greg, Greg Smith, and you know, here I am in my fifth year of playing with Ted. Wow. That truly is like the best story, success story in music as a career musician. I mean, literally, bro, we could stop the podcast there and be like, bam, done. Okay, everybody. <laughs> now go study. <laughs> Listen to what Jason said and, and do the same thing. All right, let's, let's unpack this because I'm taking notes here and you said some fantastic things. Once again, I am enamored 
with your business acumen, with your uh, ability to conduct yourself on a professional level at so many different in so many different areas of your career and life. Number one, kudos to your parents because they did a great job. <laughs> so tell them that I said so, please. Uh, I'm, I'm a father as well. My daughter is 12. So it, you know, it truly is a beautiful thing to see your children uh, excel. Um, but let's unpack this whole story. Starting with high school, first of all, I love the fact that you, you, you self-identified as a rock drummer, you you had such a self-awareness and you said, you know what, this is great. I'm a rock drummer and I love that. That's fantastic. But I want to dig deeper. Now, I did the same thing when I was probably 14. I had that same epiphany. This is cool. I could play all kinds of cool rock stuff. Eddie Van Halen was my hero, you know. So this is great. But then now I want to dig deeper. So then I started seeking lessons with teachers who I knew around me were more, you know, experienced and had all these things, all these things to teach me. Got into classical music, got into jazz, got into fusion, just like you, and talking about the rudiments and the theory. That is so important. I think there's two schools of thought. Nowadays, I see on YouTube all the time, there's the teachers that are just theory, theory, theory. And then there's the teachers that are just, oh, just feel it, just intuition. And it seems like, it almost seems like a bipolar, uh, you know, uh, separation. It's like, no, guys, let's try to find the balance in the middle. It sounds like that's what you did. Absolutely, 100%. You know, and it's kind of funny. What gave me my epiphany was I did not make ninth grade jazz band. Ooh, because, do tell. Because let's I, hear it. Because I could not read music. And it, it, really, it really shocked me because I was like, I just got off the road opening for Motley Crue, but I can't make freshman high school jazz band. Okay, let's talk about some <laughs> real shit, people. That's some real rock star stuff. You say, okay, look, yeah, I'm a rock star, dude. I, what do you mean? I just got off tour with Motley Crue for two and a half months. What? And then you're like, okay, so this is fantastic. Well, Please continue, well, sorry. Well, you know, I, it's like I, I always have been a guy that's learned by ear, you know? So when, when I had that epiphany, I knew that I had to focus on reading music. I had to focus on the technique and that sort of thing. And I found that it, it was so much easier to learn how to read and understand the theory behind it because I could physically do it. I already can physically play all this stuff. So now it's just literally looking at a paper and lining up, okay, well, X, Y, and Z is this. You know, so it made it so much easier to do that. But, you know, for me as a teacher, I teach that hybrid because you have to, you know, especially as a drummer. You know, yeah, I get it. You know, if you're playing guitar or something like that, you got to learn your scales and your chords and all that stuff. But when you're playing drums, you need to learn your inner groove because groove you can't teach. You know, mm -hmm. you got to find that yourself. So I always tell my students, just play. And then we introduce some theory here and there, but play. You know, play as much as you can because the more you play, the more you're going to learn your ins and outs of what you need to work on. You're going to learn your limitations and you're also going to just slowly progress overall. That's right. That's right. I love that. And it is a hybrid. I do believe it's the two things combined. Um, you're studying now. You're more immersed. Failing that ninth grade jazz uh, entry exam, what did that do? In 10th grade, did you apply again and you get it? What happened from there? Oh, yeah. You know, in you know, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, I you know, was in jazz band and ended up you know, getting in the symphonic orchestras. And at that point, I started into, you know, putting myself in every single ensemble. I was in jazz band. I was in a symphony band. I was in uh, marching band. I was in drumline, percussion ensemble, concert band. I sometimes played drums for the show choir. You know, any any opportunity that I had, I tried to make sure I did. You know, and, and not not just in a not just in a um, musical standpoint, but I've always been someone that's been into audio engineering. You know, luckily my my the the public school district that I went to, um, Fraser, Michigan, NAM has voted it the last I think eight or nine years as one of the top 100 music education departments in the United States. And I just ah. and I just so happened to live in this district, so it, it you know it made all the resources I had 
so 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 much better on my progression as a musician i mean but and even even our theater we had a thirty-five thousand dollar sound system and i was the audio director so i got to cut my teeth on using you know yamaha m7 cl 48 channel digital council you know stuff that that wow. most venues wish that they had you know right so um but how did you let's talk about that how did you study for to learn that console what was your approach well you know my parents first bought me my you know first little mixer when i was i think probably 10 or 11 and it was just a four channel you know korg tape recorder or something and you know i've always been fascinated with it again you know being in studios since i was little been around this stuff and you know played around with it so i just i found my way to kind of teaching myself, you know, what's EQ, what's compression, you know, what mic placement works better, you know, and of course, being a, I only play drums, I focused on miking drums and, and finding different things. So, you know, by the time I got to high school and had that council, I already, you know, had been interns in studios and worked in real studios and as an engineer, not as a, as a musician. So I've already had the, the basic layout of all that stuff. So at that point, it so was, you understood the schematic of a channel strip and how it works. Exactly. So it, it actually ended up turning into me having to teach the other students, you know, so that the teacher can concentrate on other stu students. Right. Right. <laughs> at that point, I was not a great teacher. And I kind of looked back and I was, I was, I, I'm, I'm one of those kind of guys that I just want to get it done and do it myself yeah. and not wait on other right. people. <laughs> But yeah, absolutely, but great experience. I, I can uh, I can identify with that too. Sometimes that happens. Um, but I, here's one thing I want to just touch real quick: the actual Yamaha console. Which one was it? Uh, it was the M7CL, 48 channel. M7CL, 48 channel. Did you actually study the uh, manual? I did. Instruction manual. I, okay, I, and that's what I'm looking for. That's what I want to hear. I actually, I actually uh, downloaded the PDF and took. Thank the, and you. Took the PDF to Kinkos and had it printed. Yes. <laughs> so now, that's what I. There you go. So now the high school has an extra copy of the manual. <laughs> there you go. And see, I wanted to hear people. I wanted to let people hear you say that because it's so important. Again, there's that hybrid balance. You can go from in, uh, lean on intuition. Oh, I understand what EQ does. I understand what compression does. I understand the layout of a channel strip and, and signal input. But as it pertains to each individual device and mechanism and application, you have to study. Absolutely. There comes a point that your intuition is only going to get you so far. So we, we, I really a doubt. appreciate and, that. And, and, you know, again, this, this day and age of, of unlimited information... I feel like too many people don't use the information that they have in front of them. Precisely why we're digging deep here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it. Okay, wow. So, uh, again, uh, sorry to keep bringing this back, but I can identify. I went to a performing arts high school in South Florida, experienced much of the same you know, scenarios with all the different ensembles and great instructors and whatnot. I do think that is hugely beneficial. So if there's any young middle school and high school people out there listening to this podcast, do it. Try to ask mom and dad how you can get into a performing arts high school of sorts or some kind of a technical program that will allow you to focus on your musical endeavors. Yeah, without a doubt. fantastic. And, and unfortunately, you know, we, we are seeing so many great music education programs get cut from public schools. And you know, right. that's why I'm, I'm a big advocate of, you know, VH1 Save the Music and, you know, all these other foundations that are, you know, give to, you know, schools that don't have the budget for that sort of thing. And, um, you know, because it's it, even if even if you don't like I, I work for the School of Rock Corporation when I'm off the road and, you know, home in Detroit. And which school? What is that called? Uh, the School of Rock. Oh, School of Rock. So you yeah. work for School of Rock. OK. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's a great thing when I'm not touring and I'm in town, you know, I can still teach and and uh you know give back to younger students but you know it's i try to tell everybody music education goes so much deeper than just being a professional musician you know not only are we learning the you know the the discipline and the self-awareness of you know learning a, a, a craft you know we are also teaching ourselves something that you can 
take away, even if you never play a professional gig in your life, you can still use music as a you know, great hobby. But you can turn that hobby into making money. You, know? you can play a local you know, uh, coffee shop and make you know, a couple bucks. You can get up a couple of your friends and do a cover gig at a local bar just for fun. You know, that's right. that doesn't that's mean right. it, that doesn't mean it's your day job, but you know, on the weekend you can be, be the weekend warrior musician, but you know, and, and nothing against sports, you know, I'm a massive, massive hockey fan, but, um, you, you, you look at sports in high school and compared to music and so many high school sports programs get a thousand times more cut, uh, uh, budget than the music education programs. Now put in perspective of this, if you look at, let's say, you know, when someone's 30 years old and they want to go play hockey, they have to pay to play hockey <laughs> versus if they knew how to play an instrument, they get paid to play their, 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 their hobby. I love that. That is so cool, man. Well said, bro. Well, um, you know, uh, during that time, like almost right after I graduated high school is when Pistol Day Parade started touring a lot. So... I kind of was like, you know, I'm in this, 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 this band that's getting a lot of clout. We got major money behind us, major management behind us. Let's just see what happens. And, um, you know, I did that for two years and of course it, it exploded. And, um, towards the, toward 2015, I really focused on, that's when I started doing a lot of studio work because I wasn't touring. So I was just, I was home. So I was in the studio almost every day. And also uh, co-engineering records and did a couple co-producing on a few things. But I, you know, I, was, awesome. I was mainly focusing on that and teaching. So I wasn't... And there was, I'm so sorry to interject, but there was enough studio work to keep you busy like that? Like you were really in the studio on a weekly, daily basis? Yeah, luckily, and, and it's in, you know, working out of Pearl Sound because they, they, one of their companies that the owners have is also an ad agency. So playing a lot of... TV commercials and radio commercials and all that stuff. You know, of course, 100% of that goes uncredited, but um, it's, it's nice when you're at home and <laughs> you hear yourself, oh, oh, I played on that. But <laughs> I played that. Right, and Detroit is a mecca for a lot of agency music like that. Absolutely. And, you know, Ad I, agency music. You know, yeah. like I played on a few Chevy commercials and stuff like that. So, of course, being the awesome. big three here, is, car commercials are huge. But, um, That's right. So towards the end of 2015, I was trying to figure out, okay, well, what's my next step? And I, it had been a dream of mine to go to Berkeley since I was very young. And in 2012, Berkeley sent me there in the summer. Uh, I was still in high school, um, but they sent me there for their percussion thing for like a week and a half on a full scholarship. So, you know, I got my first taste of being on campus, you know, uh, learning from the great instructors there and but I never was somebody that was like, I'm going to go to college for performance. You know, no offense to anybody that, that went to college, you know, for music performance. But I personally, I don't find it a, the, 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 the best thing for me. You know, so it was, um, it was to where, okay, well, do I go for music production, which I've had a love for for many years, or do I go to music business, which is something that could sustain myself? Because... My overall thought process behind going to college was, you know, what am I going to do with my degree if, you know, I stop getting calls to go on the road or sessions or, God forbid, I break my hand and I can't play anymore, you know. So trying to figure out not a fallback, but something else that I could utilize within my career while I'm, you know, doing my career, but then also can use it post-career. Um, that's right. So I, that's great insight. Once again, great insight at such a young age. Well, I, I had this, this kind of decision. Well, do I go with, um, do I move to Boston for four years or do I do the on the Berkeley online approach? And I decided Berkeley online and I'm going for music business. Thank God that I chose that because about that's three right. weeks later, I get the call for Ted Nugent. Okay. So again, Great foresight. You prepared yourself. So tell us about that. So now you're studying online while on tour with Ted? Yeah, you know, I, and that's another thing I chose of just going straight, you know, not taking any semesters off like some people do in the summer or whatever. 
So when I'm on the road, I'm in college. And, you know, luckily with Nugent, um, we have a lot of luxuries in terms of, you know, we've got a big bus, but also me and the bass player get our own hotel rooms during the day. So I get a lot of privacy, so I'm able to really sit down and study and not have too much distractions going on. But, you know, it's, it, it's tough, tough work, you know, because, you know, when you're on the road, it's, it's grueling. Even, 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 again, even we have a lot of luxuries and, you know, we have production assistants and things like that that can handle stuff for us, but it doesn't matter. It's still very grueling and tiring. You know, you're playing two and a half hour sets every night. By the time you get to bed, it's three o'clock. You get, wake up in the next city at 9 a.m., get thrown in a vehicle, taken to a hotel. You know, so it's, it's, yeah. it still is a grueling process, but, you know, it's, it's a very rewarding thing, of course, that, you know, I'm getting my degree. And, you know, luckily, about, about my, after my first year, I got contacted to um, become a managing partner at Prudential Music Group which was a label that I had worked with as a musician um, in the past, but the label had gone defunct because um, they had a falling out with past, um, you know, uh, managers of the label. So I, they, we have um, Sony distribution. So it's like all these releases are just sitting there and no one's doing anything with it. They're like, do you want to just take this label and see what you can do with it? So <laughs> since take, taking that and, you know, it started off just as Prudential Records. Now we've turned into Prudential Music Group with Prudential Records, Prudential Publishing, and Rouge Records, which is a uh, vinyl reissue um, label. So, you know, having this, this uh, capability to basically when I'm in school, utilize my real work situations as my homework makes it so much better. Because I'm, I'm the type of guy that I hate doing hypothetical situations you know if i'm right. doing something i want it to be real <laughs> absolutely it makes perfect sense once again best of both worlds beautiful insight foresight um you're a managing partner at prudential how much of a daily um workload does that entail well it really depends on how many releases we're doing um you know we've got uh, it's there's four partners, um, two are financial guys. Um, the other one is actually my father that came in um, a little bit, uh, probably the last couple of years, um, and, um, and myself. But we have, you know, uh, accounting and other people that take care of some of that stuff. But I mainly oversee all of the projects and make sure that, you know, everything's doing well. And, you know, it's... It's not as time consuming as it is because we're we're not a, a major label. We're we are a small, right. you know, conglomerate that just does vinyl reissues for the most part. And, you know, the most time consuming of that whole thing is just the project management. You know, once the album's out, it's kind of just you know, it's it's it does its thing at that point. You know? Do you have a marketing division? No, we, we do everything in house, you know, because you know, luckily with the Sony distribution you know they tend they handle all of the um, the smart all, there you they, go. they handle yeah. all the supply chain stuff they handle you know all the the big box stores and the mom and pop stores and and Amazon all that stuff so what only thing we do in house for marketing wise is just social media stuff you know for and is that something that you do personally yeah it, my myself um, and we we also have a social media guy but it's you know again that social media stuff is mainly geared for our um our storefront on our website so we're not getting uh, we're getting a lot of sales through our storefront but a majority of our sales comes through you know the big box retailers and you know the mom and pop record shops but um you know luckily we we again are in the age of social media so it if you do it right it doesn't cost as much than than, right. than happen to you know uh, uh um really really spend almost your whole budget on marketing and also having the artists that are sustaining versus artists that you have to really push you know like mm. we, we've got we've got some stuff coming down the line before this pandemic happened but stuff coming at the end of the year you know it's going to be stuff that is, is going to be super easy for us to market you know um these are more like legacy acts right absolutely absolutely yeah. you know and and we do a lot of stuff at Record Store Day, and that's that's really our big breadwinner because it's free marketing. It doesn't cost us anything, and all of our stuff instantly sells. Where where is that now? The record uh, annual Record Store Day. It happens in um, 
uh, April and then uh, the Black Friday in, in November. But wow, I wasn't even hip there was such a thing. That's awesome. Yeah, it's I mean it's it's unbelievable. I mean, and all the major labels and all the indie labels, you know, are involved in this thing and it's mainly it's uh, not too many big box uh, retailers are involved, but it's it's all the mom and pop record shops around the United States, Canada and over in uh United Kingdom. But um it's it's like we've got we've got a release coming up that actually was announced yesterday. Um at Chad Smith, drummer from Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, we had recently acquired um, the rights to the band that he was in in Detroit back in, before he joined the Chili Peppers. And that band was very, very, very popular in Detroit, but never got the national recognition. And, and honestly, I, like, I've been a fan of this album for years. And when we started the vinyl reissue, wow. this was kind of like on my bucket list of albums I wanted to, to get. So for us now to get it, and um, like yesterday, Sabian Symbols uh, did a Detroit drummers chat with myself, Chad Smith, and Greg Bissonette from Ringo Starr. And it was a great way to actually officially announce this release. You know, because. Wait, so hold on a minute. So, so it was you, Chad Smith, and uh, Greg, well, Greg Bissonette, who's. Greg Bissonette, who's of course. Played with everybody. And we're all, we're all Detroit guys, you know, so it was a cool kind of drummer, Detroit drummer conversation on Facebook. Uh, live that Sabian Symbols did. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Okay, so hold on. I'm still I'm unpacking everything here. You go you go so fast, but this is great. All right. So the Chad Smith band for of course Chad Smith from the Chili Peppers. What was the the name of his Detroit band? Uh Toby Red. Toby Red and Prudential Music Group now has the rights to release that. Yeah. And you know, when when can we expect to see that available? Well, depending on, you know, how this, this whole pandemic plays out, but we're still shooting yeah. for, um, you know, fall of this year. But okay. what's crazy is, like, this, to me personally, this record is one of the best records of the 80s that never got the recognition it deserved. Really? You know, so it's, when this, when this record comes out, people are going to, you know, shit their pants because it's, it's a phenomenal record. And, of course, it's got one of the most legendary, well-known drummers of all time, before he was in the Red Hot Chili Peppers. That's awesome. Fantastic. Jason, this is a wonderful wealth of knowledge, experience, and real life practicality, man. You're doing it on every aspect. When do you get your bachelor's degree? Um, next, I think it's, yeah, next Saturday. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha, what's that date? Uh, May? Oh, uh, no, actually, no, I'm sorry. It's. Two two Saturdays, May May eleventh or no May 9th. I was supposed to May, I was supposed to May fly 9th. out to uh, to Boston to walk across the stage, but unfortunately, due to this stuff, um, you know, kind of had to get canceled. But um, we've got a great plan B if because uh, as of right now, you know, Nugent is still going to be touring this summer, um, starting mid July, and um, the plan is to uh, have Ted give me my diploma on stage at um, at our local <laughs> Detroit uh, hometown show in front of twenty thousand people. So that's come on, that's dude, that's amazing. Oh, that is so cool. Okay, so much good stuff. And then you're going back for your master's. Is that what you said? Yep. Yeah. I mean, I'm. St well, it's funny. I graduate in two weeks, but I'm still in this semester until the end of June. And right. um like the next week I start my master's. So I'm, I'm going straight okay. into it. And the master's will continue the business studies? Yep, uh, music business and master's. And you know, it'll take me probably two years or so. Two years. That's fantastic, man, fantastic. Hey, um, for those listeners who are curious, who might be thinking about doing some online schooling themselves, was it uh, more affordable online or is it basically the same as going, you know, Obviously, minus the living expenses if you go. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 Berkeley. Berkeley is right. super crazy expensive as it is, but you know, even even the online stuff, you know, it's honestly comparable to most Ivy League university price wise. But it still is. Okay. It still saves a lot in terms of you know your time, you know, living mm -hmm. expenses, all that all that stuff. That's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that with us, man. So much material. I, we're going to let you go here real quick. I have a few more things. Words of wisdom to people, 
your age and younger that are really aspiring to do the same exact thing that you're doing? You know, there's so, there's so much that it's hard to pinpoint one, but you know, I guess the biggest thing I always try to advocate is be the guy that can just do it all. You know, be the guy that can play any style of music, be the guy that can do whatever gig possible, you know, because that's how you're going to stay working. And that's how you're going to, you know, continue, you know, when, when one gig ends, you can step right into the next one. That's right. That's right. That's wonderful. Okay. Now for the fun part. Do you mind if we do a quick rapid fire little session yeah. questions just for fun? Absolutely. All right. Drum roll, please. <laughs> how apropos, right? Okay. Favorite food? Uh, probably steak. Nice. Favorite libation? What? Favorite drink. Oh. Libation is a fancy way of saying drink, right? <laughs> <laughs> Adult or, or kid friendly, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, I'm a big, big pop guy, so, you know, I, I love A&W root beer. Nice, that's old school. I like it, I like it. I already know your favorite sport, hockey. So who is your favorite hockey team aside from the Red Wings? Toronto Maple Leafs. Oh wow! Yep. Easy. Okay. Yeah, my my, my, uh, my in ears. Uh, one one ear is a Red Wings logo. The other ear is the Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> That's awesome. Do you play a hockey yourself? No, I would love to, um, but uh, I, I don't want to risk breaking anything. But you know, luckily over the years I've become become close friends with um, a couple of Detroit Red Wings, and you know it's funny because they've always tried to be a musician. And I've always, you know, loved to play hockey. So we've got a kind of, you know, comparison of our, our lifestyles. That's so awesome. How do you spend your free time? <sighs> I, I really don't. You know, I, I'm, everything that I do is music related, honestly. You know, when yeah. I'm not doing something else, I'm doing another thing. Right. I think we can all relate to that. <laughs> all right. What, acti what activities do you enjoy on long flights other than sleeping? Uh, listening to music. You know, um, Usually, usually when I'm when I'm actually on, on flights, I'm on my laptop doing work or something. But you know, it's uh, I always have you know Toto or the Who or whatever on, and you know all my favorite stuff, um, you know, on my phone or laptop. I was just going to ask you the perfect segue: the last song, band, or artist that you listen to that you're not working on. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, lis I listen to so much, so much stuff, and it's it's you know it's uh, it, again. I'm, I'm the, I I love that I have access to, you know. So being a studio guy, I love digging into studio musicians. So having resources such as Discogs, you're able to dig into every album that you know a studio player played on, and so I, I kind of go down the list and try to listen to as much. But you know, like Jeff Picaro is one of my favorites of all time, but it's hard to listen to every single thing he's played on because he played on thousands of songs. That's right. That's right. So I'm always discovering something new. Awesome. Favorite TV show or movie that you've been streaming lately? Well, uh, you know, favorite, favorite movie is Jaws, without a doubt. Got Jaws poster. But, and, I like you know, it. Sanford and Son TV show is just, no, no, one, no, no one can beat that. <laughs> That's awesome. When you can do this activity do you prefer online or brick and mortar shopping something that lately seems to have gone online for so many it, it depends you know I, I luckily detroit's got a lot of great record shops so i i prefer to go into a record shop and, and you know and physically find something versus if i need something just that's really non-essential that it's quick and easy i'll use amazon prime but i i yeah. I, I, I i it sucks to see the the big box brick and mortar places actually going away and online stuff resurfacing, which is, it's easy, it's quick, yes, but, you know, not always the best once everything's gone. Right, and it takes away the experience. Absolutely. Yeah, dream collaboration. Pro probably Steve Lukather. Love it. And finally, what would you do if you weren't a career musician? Hmm, that's tough. You know, uh... Probably, probably, I'm a massive Disney nerd, so prob probably working for the Disney Corporation, you know, and at the theme park, you know, stuff. So I've, I've, it's always been a big hobby of mine. Very cool. Jason, this has been a wonderful interview. Thank you so much for all of your insight. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's great talking. Absolutely. Empowering musicians with solutions for a sustainable career in the music industry. Subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.
Binge previous seasons of the Career Musician Podcast and subscribe for all new episodes. Subscribe to the brand new Career Musician YouTube channel, now streaming all of the Career Musician Podcast episodes. Want to learn more about a particular topic? Tag at the Career Musician and use hashtag Career Musician to let us know what you'd like to hear. Hey, this is Nomad, host and creator of the Career Musician Podcast, and I am thoroughly stoked to be an official member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Pantheon Podcast Network is the first of its kind as an all-music-based podcast collective. Please be sure to check us out at pantheonpodcast.com for more info.